This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 9, Marita's Bargain. Section 1. In the mid-1990s, an experimental public school called the Kiff Academy opened on the fourth floor of Lou Gehrig Junior High School in New York City. KIPP stands for Knowledge is Power Program. Lou Gehrig is in the 7th School District, otherwise known as the South Bronx, one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. It is a squat, gray, 1960s-era building across the street from a bleak-looking group of high-rises. A few blocks over is Grand Concourse, the borough's main th thoroughfare. The, these are not streets you'd happily walk down, alone, and after dark. KIPP is a middle school. Classes are large. The fifth grade has two sections of 35 students each. There are no entrance exams or admission requirements. Students are chosen by lottery, with any fourth grader living in the Bronx eligible to apply. Roughly half of the students are African American. The rest are Hispanic. Three quarters of the children come from single parent homes. 90% qualify for free or reduced lunch, which is to say that their families earn so little that the federal government chips in so the children can eat properly at lunchtime. KIPP Academy seems like the kind of school in the kind of neighborhood with the kind of student that would make educators despair, except that the minute you walk into the building, it's clear that something is different. The students walk quietly down the hallways in single file. In the classroom, they are taught to turn and address anyone talking to them in a, product, in a protocol known as SSLANT, which is smile, sit up, listen, ask questions, nod, and track with your eyes. Wow. On the walls of the school's corridors are hundreds of pennants from the colleges that KIPP graduates have gone on to attend. Last year, hundreds of families from across the Bronx entered the lottery for KIPP's two fifth grade classes. It is no exaggeration to say that in just over 10 years into its existence, KIPP has become one of the most desirable public schools in New York City. What KIPP is most famous for is its mathematics. In the South Bronx, only about 16% of all middle school students are performing at or above their grade level in math. But at KIPP, by the end of fifth grade, many of the students call math their favorite subject. In the seventh grade, KIPP students start high school algebra. By the end of eighth grade, 84% of the students are performing at or above their grade level, which is to say that this motley group of randomly chosen lower-income kids from dingy apartments in one of the world, the country's worst neighborhoods, whose parents, in an overwhelming number of cases, never set foot in a college, do as well in mathematics as the privileged eighth graders of America's wealthy suburbs. David Levin, who founded KIPP with fellow teacher Michael Feinberg in 1944, says, quote, our kids' reading is on point. They struggle a little bit with writing skills, but when they leave here, they rock at math, end quote. There are now more than 50 KIPP schools across the United States, with more on the way. The KIPP program represents one of the most promising new educational philosophies in the United States. But its success is best understood not in terms of its curriculum, its teachers, its resources, or some kind of institutional innovation. KIPP is, rather, an organization that has succeeded by taking the idea of cultural legacies seriously. Section 2 
In the early 19th century, a group of reformers set out to establish a system of public education in the United States. What passed for public school at the time was haphazard assortment of locally run one-room schoolhouses in overcrowded urban classrooms scattered around the country. In rural areas, schools closed in the spring and fall and ran all summer long so that children could help out in the busy planting and harvesting seasons. In the city, many schools mirrored the long and chaotic schedules of the children's working class parents. The reformers wanted to make sure that all children went to school, and the public school was comprehensive, meaning that all children got enough schooling to learn how to read and to write, and to do basic arithmetic and function as productive citizens. But as a historian Kenneth Gold has pointed out, the early educational reformers were also tremendously concerned that children not get too much schooling. In 1871, for example, the U.S. Commissioner of Education published a report by Edward Jarvis on the relation of education to insanity. Jarvis had studied 1,741 cases of insanity and concluded that overstudy was responsible for 205 of them. Quote, education lays the foundation of a large portion of the causes of mental disorder, Jarvis writes, end quote. Similarly, the pioneer of public education in Massachusetts, Horace Mann, believed that working students too hard would create, quote, a most pernicious influence upon character and habits. Not infrequently is health itself destroyed by overstimulating the mind, end quote. In the education journals of the day, there were constant worries about overtaxing students or blunting their natural abilities through too much schoolwork. The reformers, Gold writes, quote, strove for ways to reduce time spent studying because long periods of, resp of respite could save the mind from injury. Hence, the elimination of, sun of Saturday classes, the shortening of the school day, and the lengthening of vacation, all of which occurred over the course of the 19th century. Teachers were cautioned that when students are required to study, their bodies should not be exhausted by long confinement, nor their minds bewildered by prolonged application. Rest is presented particular. Rest also presented particular opportunities for strengthening cognitive and analytical skills. As one contributor to the Massachusetts teacher suggested, it is when thus relieved from the state of tension belonging to actual study that boys and girls, as well as men and women, acquire the habit of thought and reflection and of forming their own conclusions, independently of what, they, of what they are taught and the authority of others. This idea that effort must be balanced by rest could not be more different from Asian notions about study and work, of course. By then, the Asian worldview was shaped by the rice paddy. In the Pearl River Delta, the rice farmer planted two and sometimes three crops a year. The land was fallow only briefly. In fact, one of the singular features of rice cultivation is that because of the nutrients carried by the water used in irrigation, the more a plot of land is cultivated, the more fertile it gets. But in Western agriculture, the opposite is true. Unless a wheat or cornfield is left fallow every few years, the soil becomes exhausted. Every winter, fields are empty. The hard labor of spring planting and fall harvesting is followed, like clockwork, by the slower pace of summer and winter. This is the logic that reformers applied to the cultivation of young minds. We formulate new ideas by analogy, working from what we know toward what we don't know, and what the reformers knew were the rhythms of the agricultural seasons. A mind must be cultivated, 
but not too much, lest it be exhausted. And what was the remedy for the dangers of exhaustion? A long summer vacation, a peculiar and distinctive American legacy that has had profound consequences on the learning patterns of the students of the present day. Section 3. Summer vacation is a topic seldom mentioned in American educational debates. It is considered a permanent and inviolate feature of school life, like high school football or the senior prom. But take a look at the following sets of elementary school test score results and see if your faith in the value of long summer holidays is not profoundly shaken. These numbers come from research led by the Johns Hopkins University sociologist Carl Alexander. Alexander tracked the progress of 650 first graders from the Baltimore public school system, looking at how they scored on a widely used math and reading skills exam called the California Achievement Test. These are reading scores for the first five years of elementary school, broken down by socioeconomic class, low, middle, and high. Look at the first column, where students start in the first grade with meaningful but not overwhelming differences in their knowledge and ability. The first graders from the wealthiest homes have a 32-point advantage over the first graders from the poorest homes. And by the way, first graders from the poor homes in Baltimore were really poor. Now look at the fifth grade co column. At that point, four years later, the initially modest gap between rich and poor has more than doubled. This achievement gap is a phenomenon that has been observed over and over again, and it typically provokes one of two responses. The first response is that disadvantaged kids simply don't have the same inherent ability to learn as children from more privileged backgrounds. They're not as smart. The second slightly more optimistic conclusion is that in some way, our schools are failing poor children. We simply aren't doing a good enough job of teaching them the skills which they need. But here's where Alexander's study gets interesting because it turns out that neither of these explanations rings true. The city of Baltimore didn't give his kids the California Achievement Test just at the end of every school year in June. It gave them the test in September too, just after summer vacation ended. What Alexander realized is that the second set of test results allowed him to do a slightly different analysis. If he, looked at, if he looked at the beginning between the score a student got at the beginning of the school year in September and the score he or she got the following June, he could measure precisely how much that student learned over a school year. And if he looked at the difference between a student's score in June and then in the following September, he could see how much that student learned over the course of the summer. In other words, he could figure out, at least in part, how much of the achievement gap is the result of things that happen during the school year and how much it has to do with what happens during summer vacation. Let's start with the school year gains. This table shows how many points students' test scores rose from the time they started classes in September to the time they stopped in June. The total column represents their cumulative classroom learning from all five years of elementary school. Here is a completely different story from the one suggested by the first table. The first set of test results made it look like lower income kids were somehow failing in the classroom. But here we see plainly that isn't true. Look at the total column. Over the course of five years of elementary school, poor kids outlearn the wealthiest kids 189 points to 184. They lag behind the middle class kids by only a modest amount. And in fact, in one year, second grade, they learn more than the middle or upper class kids. Now, let's see what happens if we look just at how reading scores change during summer vacation. 
Do you see the difference? Look at the first column, which measures what happened over the summer after first grade. The wealthiest kids come back in September and their reading scores have jumped more than 15 points. The poorest kids have come back from holiday and their reading scores have dropped almost four points. Poor kids may outlearn rich kids during the school year, but during the summer, they fall far behind. Now take a look at the last column, which totals up all the summer gains from first grade to fifth grade. The reading scores of the poor kids go up by 0.26 points. When it comes to reading skills, poor kids learn nothing when school is not in session. The reading scores of the rich kids, by contrast, goes up by a whopping 52.49 points. Virtually all of the advantage that wealthy students have over poor students is the result of differences in the way privileged kids learn while they are not in school. What are we seeing here? One of the very real possibility, one very real possibility is that these are the educational consequences of the differences in parenting styles that we talked about in the Chris Langan chapter. Think back to Alex Williams, the nine-year-old whom Annette LaRoe studied. His parents believed in concerted cultivation. He gets taken to museums and gets enrolled in special programs and goes to summer camp where he takes classes. He's bored at home and there were plenty of books, of books to read and his parents see it as their responsibility to keep him actively engaged in the world around. It's not hard to see how Alex would get better at reading and math over the summer. But not Katie Brindle, the little girl from the other side of the tracks. There's no money to send her to summer camp. She's not driven around by her mom to special classes and there aren't books lying around her house that she can read if she gets bored. There's probably just a television. She may still have a wonderful vacation, making new friends, playing outside, going to the movies, having the kind of carefree summer days that we all dream about. None of these things, though, will improve her math and reading skills, and every carefree summer day she spends puts her further and further behind Alex. Alex isn't necessarily smarter than Katie. He's just outlearning her. He's putting in a few solid months of learning during the summer while she watches television and plays outside. What Alexander's work suggests is that the way in which education has been discussed in the United States is backwards. An enormous amount of time is spent talking about reducing class size, rewriting curricula, buying every student a shiny new laptop, and increasing school funding all of which assumes that there is something fundamentally wrong with the job that schools are doing. But look back at the second table, which shows what happens between September and June. Schools work. The only problem with school, for the kids who aren't achieving, is that there is not enough of it. Alexander, in fact, has done a very simple calculation to demonstrate what, what would happen if the children of Baltimore went to school year-round. The answer is that poor kids and wealthy kids would, by the end of the elementary school, be doing math and reading at almost the same level. Suddenly, the causes of Asian math superiority become even more obvious. Students in Asian schools don't have long summer vacations. Why would they? Cultures that believe that the route to success lies in rising before dawn 360 days a year are scarcely going to give their children three straight months off in the summer. The school year in the United States is, on average, 180 days long. The South Korean school year is 220 days long. The Japanese school year, 243 days. One of the questions asked of test takers on a recent math test given to students around the world was how many of the algebra, calculus, and geometry questions covered subject matter they, they had previously learned in class.
For Japanese 12th graders, the answer was 92%. That's the value of going to school 243 days a year. You have the time to learn everything that needs to be learned, and you have less time to unlearn it. For American 12th graders, the comparable figure was 54%. For its poorest students, America doesn't have a school problem, it has a summer vacation problem. And that's the problem the KIPP schools set out to solve. They decided to bring the lessons of the rice paddy to the American inner city. Section 4. Quote, they start school at 725, says David Levin of the students at the Bronx KIPP Academy. They all do a course called Thinking Skills until 755. They do 90 minutes of English, 90 minutes of math every day, except in fifth grade, where they do two hours of math a grade or a day. An hour of science, an hour of social science, an hour of music at least twice a week, and then you have an hour and 15 minutes of orchestra on top of that. Everybody does orchestra. The day goes from 7.25 until 5 p.m. After 5, there are homework clubs, detention, and sports teams. There are kids here from 7.25 until 7 p.m. If you take an average day and you take out lunch and recess, our kids are spending 50 to 60% more time learning than a traditional public school student does, end quote. Levin was standing in the school's main hallway. It was lunchtime, and the students were trooping by quietly in orderly lines, all of them in their KIPP Academy shirts. Levin stopped a girl whose shirt tail was out. Do me a favor when you get the chance, he called, miming a tuck-in movement. He continued, Saturdays they come in 9 to 1. In the summer, it's 8 to 2, end quote. By summer, Levin was referring to the fact that KIPP students do three extra weeks of school in July. These are, after all, precisely the kind of lower-income kids who Alexander identified as losing ground over the long summer vacation. So KIPP's response is simply to not have a long summer vacation. Quote, The beginning is hard, he continues. By the end of the day, they're restless. Part of it is endurance, and part of it is motivation. Part of it is incentives and rewards and fun stuff. Part of it is good old-fashioned discipline. You throw all of that into the stew. We talk a lot here about grit and self-control. The kids know what those words mean. Levin walked down the hall to an 8th grade math class and stood quietly in the back. A student named Aaron was at the front of the class, working his way through a problem from the page of thinking skill exercises that all KIPP students are required to do each morning. The teacher, a ponytailed man in his 30s named Frank Corcoran, sat in a chair to the side, only occasionally jumping in to guide the discussion. It was the kind of scene repeated every day in American classrooms, with one difference. Aaron was up at the front working on that single problem for 20 minutes, methodically, carefully, with the participation of the class, working his way through not just the answer, but also the question of whether there was more than one way to get the answer. It was Renee painstakingly figuring out the concept of undefined slope all over again. Corcoran said after the class was over, quote, What that extra time does is allow for a more relaxed atmosphere. I find that the problem with math education is the sink or swim approach. Everything is rapid fire, and the kids who get it first are the ones who are rewarded. So there comes to be a feeling that there are people who can do math, and there aren't math people, and that there are people who aren't math people. I think that extended amount of time gives you the chance as a teacher to explain things and more time for the kids to sit and digest everything that's going on, to review, to do things at a much slower pace. 
It seems counterintuitive, but we do things at a slower pace, and as a result, we get through a lot more. There's a lot more retention, better understanding of the material. It lets me be a little bit more relaxed. We have time to have games. Kids can ask any questions they want, and if I'm explaining something, I don't feel pressed for time. I can go back over material and not feel time pressure." End quote. The extra time gave Corcoran the chance to make mathematics meaningful, to let his students see the clear relationship between effort and reward. On the walls of the classroom were dozens of certificates from the New York State Regents exam, testifying to first-class honors for Corcoran students. Quote, we had a girl in this class, Corcoran says. She was a horrible math student in fifth grade. She cried every Saturday when we did remedial stuff. Huge tears and tears. At the memory, Corcoran got a little emotional himself. He looked down and said, she just emailed us a, a couple weeks ago. She's in college now and is an accounting major. End quote. Section 5. The story of the miracle school that transforms losers into winners is, of course, all too familiar. It's the stuff of inspirational books and sentimental Hollywood movies. But the reality of places like Kip is a good deal less glamorous than that. To get a sense of what 50 to 60% more learning time means, listen to the typical day in the life of a Kip student. The student's name is Marita. She's an only child who lives in a single parent home. Her mother never went to college. The two of them share a one bedroom apartment in the Bronx. Marita used to go to a parochial school down the street from her home until her mother heard of Kip. Quote, when I was in fourth grade, me and one of my other friends, Tanya, we both applied to Kip, remembers Marita. I remember Miss Owens. She interviewed me and the way she was saying made it sound so hard I thought I was going to prison. I almost started crying and she was like, if you don't want to sign this, you don't have to sign it. But then my mom was right there, so I did. End quote. With that, her life changed. Keep in mind while reading this, what follows, that Marita is 12 years old. Quote, I wake up at 5.45 a.m. to get a head start, she says. I brush my teeth and shower. I get some breakfast at school if I'm running late. I usually get yelled at because I am taking too long. I meet my friends Diana and Steven at the bus stop, and we get the number one bus. A 5.45 wake-up is fairly typical of KIPP students, especially given the long bus and subway commutes that many have to get to school. Levin, at one point, went into a 7th grade music class with 70 kids in it and asked for a show of hands on when the students woke up. A handful said they woke up after 6. Three quarters said they woke up before 6, and almost half said they woke up before 5.30. One classmate of Marita's, a boy named Jose says he time, sometimes wakes up at 3 or 4 a.m., finishes his homework from the night before, and then goes back to sleep for a little bit. Marita went on, quote, I leave school at 5 p.m., and if I don't lollygag around, then I will get home around 5.30. Then I say hi to my mom really quickly and start my homework. And if it's not a lot of homework that day, it will take me two or three hours, and I'll be done around 9 p.m. Or, if we have essays, then I will be done like 10 p.m. or 10.30. Sometimes my mom makes me break for dinner. I tell her I want to go straight through, but she says I have to eat. So around 8, she makes me break for dinner for like a half hour, and then I get back to work. Then, usually after that, my mom wants to hear about school, but I have to make it quick because I have to get into bed by 11. So I get all my stuff ready, and then I get into bed. I tell her about the day and what happened, and by the time we are finished, she is on the brink of sleeping. So that's probably around 11.15. 
Then I go to sleep, and the next morning we do it all over again. We are in the same room. It's a huge bedroom and you can split it into two, but we have beds on other sides. Me and my mother were close. End quote. Marita spoke in the matter-of-fact way that children who have no idea of knowing how unusual their situation is. She had the hours of a lawyer trying to make partner, or of a medical resident. All that, were mis all that was missing were the dark circles under her eyes and a steaming cup of coffee, except that she was too young for either. Marita continued, quote, Sometimes I don't go to sleep when I'm supposed to. I go to sleep at like 12 o'clock, and the next afternoon it will hit me. I will doze off in class, but then I have to wake up because I have to get the information. I remember I was in one class, and I was dozing off, and the teacher saw me and said, Can I talk to you after class? He asked me, Why were you dozing off? And I told him I went to sleep late, and he said, You need to go to sleep earlier. End quote. Section 6. Marita's life is not the life of a typical 12-year-old, nor is it what we would necessarily wish for a 12-year-old. Children, we like to believe, should have time to play and dream and sleep. Marita has responsibilities. What is being asked of her is the same thing that we asked of the Korean pilot. To become a success at what they did, they had to shed some part of their own identity because the deep respect for authority that runs throughout the Korean culture simply does not work in the cockpit. Marita has had to do the same because the cultural legacy she has been given does not match her circumstances either, not when middle and upper class families are using weekends and summer vacation to push their children ahead. Her community does not give her what she needs. So what does she have to do? Give up her evenings and weekends and friends, all the elements of her old world, and replace them with Kip. Here is Marita again, in a passage that is little short of heartbreaking. Quote, well, when we started first grade, I used to have contact with one of the girls from my old school. And whenever I left school on Friday, I would go to her house and stay there until my mom would get home from work. So I would be at her house and I would be doing my homework. She would never have any homework. And she would say, oh my God, you stay there late. Then she said she wanted to go to Kip, but then she would say that Kip is too hard and she didn't want to do it. And I would say, everyone says that Kip is hard, but once you get the hang of it, it's not really that hard. She told me, it's because you are smart. And I said, no, every one of us is smart. She was so discouraged because we stayed until five and had a lot of homework to do. And I told her that us having a lot of homework helps us do better in class. And she told me that she didn't want to hear the whole speech. All my friends now are from Kip, end quote. Is this a lot to ask of a child? It is. But think of things from Marita's perspective. She has made a bargain with her school. She will get up at 5.45 in the morning, go in on Saturdays, and do homework until 11 at night. In return, Kip promises that it will take kids like her, who are stuck in poverty, and give them a chance to get out. It will get 84% of them up to or above their grade level in mathematics. On the strength of that performance, 90% of Kip students get scholarships to private or parochial high schools instead of having to attend their own desultory Desultory? Desultory high schools in the Bronx. And on the strength of that high school experience, more than 80% of KIPP graduates will go on to college, in many cases being the first in their family to do so. How could that be a bad bargain? Everything we have learned in Outliers says that success follows a predictable course. It is not the brightest who succeed. If it were, Chris Langan would be up there with Einstein. Nor is success simply the sum of the decisions and efforts we make on our own behalf. It is, rather, a gift. 
Outliers are those who have been given opportunities and who have had the strength and presence of mind to seize them. For hockey players and soccer players born in January, it's a better shot at making the all-star team. For the Beatles, it was in Hamburg. For Bill Gates, the lucky break was being born at the right time and getting the gift of computer terminal in junior high. Joe Flom and the founders of Wachtel, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz got multiple breaks. They were born at the right time with the right parents and the right ethnicity, which allowed them to practice takeover law for 20 years before the rest of the legal world caught on. And what Korean Air did when it finally turned its operations around was give its pilots the opportunity to escape the constraints of their cultural legacy. The lesson here is very simple, but it is striking how often it is overlooked. We are so caught in the myths of the best and the brightest and the self-made that we think outliers spring naturally from the earth. We look at the young Bill Gates and marvel that our world allowed that 13-year-old to become a fabulously successful entrepreneur. But that's the wrong lesson. Our world only allowed one 13-year-old unlimited access to a time-sharing terminal in 1968. If a million teenagers had been given the same opportunity, how many more Microsofts would we have today? To build a better world, we need to replace the patchwork of lucky breaks and arbitrary advantages that today determine success the fortunate birth dates, and the happy accidents of history, replace them with a society that provides opportunities for all. If Canada had a second hockey league for those children born in the last half of the year, it would today have twice as many adult hockey stars. Now multiply that sudden flowering of talent by every field and profession. The world could be so much richer than the world we have settled for. Marita doesn't need a brand new school with acres of playing fields and gleaming facilities. She doesn't need a laptop, a smaller class, a teacher with a PhD, or a bigger apartment. She doesn't need a higher IQ or a mind as quick as Chris Langan's. All those things would be nice, of course, but they missed the point. Marita just needed a chance. And look at the chance she was given. Someone brought a little bit of the rice paddy to the South Bronx and explained to her the miracle of meaningful work. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.